Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam and welcome to the latest edition of Paleo Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Mills, and today I am here with Dr. Kayla Thorne. Happy to be here. And um, so you're um, here. We're, we're recording this uh, in a short break that you've got, and you've ducked from Western Australia back to Adelaide, though you are from Western Australia originally, but you spent your time doing your PhD here in uh, Flinders University. Yes, I have hop, skipped and jumped quite a few times in my life, actually. I was born in Adelaide um, and moved to WA as a kid, grew up there, went to school there, did my undergraduate degree there at the University of Western Australia, um, where I majored in zoology and geology, which is a very unusual combination, unless you are surrounded by paleontologists who see those fields as very relevant. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's and the then two central planks. Yeah, and then I... Because I was interested in paleo, I got friendly with some people at the museum and eventually they told me, oh, you have to go and do a PhD at Flinders. That's the place to be. And that's exactly what I did in okay, a very so, higgledy-piggledy way, but I got here. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a bit of museum in there. There's a bit of university. But what we're talking about, going to talk about today is very much the, 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 the museum side of things because we both play in those spaces um, but you've brought a, you've brought an object. I did bring. Well, I because I am travelling light, much like Natalie was when she was visiting. I've borrowed an object that I was part of collecting quite a few years ago when I was here, based at Flinders. Um, and this object uh, serves a lot of purposes today. Um, it's important to me because uh, so a bit of context. This is. Flinders University reference number 139. That's the, the catalogue number of this specimen. Um, and it is a mummified bobtail lizard, which is what they call it in WA, which this specimen comes from WA. Um, it's from the Nullarbor Caves. Uh, and here in South Australia, we call them sleepy lizards. Other people call them shinglebacks. Um, but what it looks like is pretty much it looks like the living lizard except obviously it's dead because it's a mummy, but all of the scales of these lizards have bones inside them. And so when it mummified, we have almost a perfect shape of the original animal preserved as bone. So this is now a fossil, uh, but it looks very similar to the living organism and it's a lizard, which is my favorite group of lizard. vertebrates. Yeah, so how, how old is that? We don't know. So <clears throat> this came from the surface inside the cave, uh, so it could have fallen in a year before we picked it up, but it was very dry on the inside. It wasn't particularly stinky when we found it. Uh, and so for it to be added to the university reference collection, it was just hardened with soluble plastics. Um, and so that it's sort of holds together a bit better in, um, in perpetuity and so that bugs don't want to eat it. And they're the same sort of plastics that you use if you're, cause it's not, it, it what, what I'm, I'm looking at at the moment and, and, and thinking, okay, so it could be that it was a year old when you found it. Cause we, we think of fossils as millions of years old, yeah. or hundreds of millions of years old. 
So that idea that something could be classified as a fossil that's not that old is quite an interesting Every concept. place has a different definition for what is a fossil and what is not a fossil. Um, so different. generally it's museums that keep both. Uh, and their definition varies between different museums. Uh, my favourite one, which I heard when I was working at the West Australian Museum for my honours project, um, was that if an animal has a known date of death, so with any confidence you can get it down to, it might not be an actual date as in a day, but it might be a month or a year. If it has a known date of death, then it goes into the modern animal collection. So it'll go into the mammal collection or the reptile collection. Um, if it has an unknown date of death, so it might be sitting, it might be something sitting on the surface of a cave. They put it into the paleontology collection because, yeah, it might have died last year, but for some of these cave deposits we're looking at, these fossils have been sitting on the surface, they're mummified and they look like they died last year, but in the case of some of the thylacine skeletons from Thylacine Hole on the Nullarbor, they're, you know, 3,000 years old um, and they still have fur and their little toenails and everything preserved. So if you don't have a known date of death, um, without having to carbon date it, obviously, then uh, it goes into the paleo collection. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I, for me, a, a, the definition I love of fossils is that they are... Um, but then, I mean, all, all an geologist will tell you that all rocks are stories, but it's, 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 a, it's a memoir. It's a memoir of the past, isn't yeah. it? It's a, it's a story that waiting there to be told but you need to have the capacity to identify what it is when you're looking at a fossil and stuff um so i'm going to get out my object okay because that'll lead us to talk some more about what i wanted to talk about today um so i brought <laughs> i'm very familiar with that specimen yeah your best so this is a megalodon tooth um and it's from my understanding is it's from off the coast of new caledonia um and Tim Flannery told me that, so I'm gonna take that as probably a reasonable good guess. Uh, yep. Good guess. Um and this particular megalodon tooth I use often when I'm at the South Australian Museum or in other museums as as a as a conversation starter, uh, as as a as a comparison with great white sharks and other sharks' teeth. So I use it with birthday parties i use it with with other kinds of tours with torchlight tours um and you're familiar with it because i used to also <clears throat> do birthday parties at the south australian museum uh, moonlighting as you <laughs> well yes yeah so you weren't quite professor flint um you were the long lost great great grand niece of, of mary, mary anning. anning so i was professor anning uh which was quite an honor to sort of pretend to wear that name um, but yeah, so I got to run pretty much the exact same tours as you. And you see a very different side of the museum when you tour a whole bunch of very small children through the galleries because they engage with very different things to what I do um, as sort of a young professional, a young educated professional. So um, even, even just a simple thing where like their eyes are at a completely are different a completely level. Completely different. They level. are drawn to completely different things. So you can have one big diorama, for example, and 
you know, I'll be at eye level with a kangaroo or some birds perching above and the small kids are like, wow, did you see this gecko or this tiny little skink down the bottom? Which is, to me, actually what I'm more interested in. So I get super excited when they point that stuff out. But yeah, it's just an entirely different way to see all of these spaces and what's going on. And and that's one of the things that, 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 that in, in, in talking about museums, that this idea that, that, that museums matter, isn't it? And museums matter. You hear all a lot of talk, and there has been talk for quite some years of, oh, look, you know, you, you just, a virtual museum is all that you need, and you just have the, you just, you just get people to look at the models and things, and they'll say, yeah, that's nice, but there is nothing, there is nothing like passing this megalodon tooth round to a group of whether it's kids or grown-ups, and talking about the fact that this this megalodon tooth was a living thing. You're not you're not touching a computer. You're not looking through a VR thing. And all those things are useful. But the great thing about collections and museums are custodians of collections. First and foremost. First and foremost, they are a custodian of the collections of the stories of us. And but the great thing about being able to pass a megalodon tooth round or whatever the object is, is that you're holding a tooth that sat inside the mouth of an actual living thing that, in the case of this one, swam the oceans near uh, New Caledonia about 10 million years ago. It's... it's Give it, people it, perspective. Yeah, it, so it represents... It represents uh, the species and helps tell us, gives us insights to that, and it helps us compare it with... Um, existing species, which is what paleontologists do. It's like, oh, and, and often I'll show this to people. What does it look like? Oh, it's triangle. It's got a serrated edge. It, it looks a little bit like a great white shark tooth, though they're a little bit more distantly related than we used to think. So it gives you that comparison and that perspective. But it's like this, this, this was a thing. This was an individual, just as I am, just as you are. And that's what I love about collections and the layers of stories that dwell within each of them. So you've spent a bit of time in doing public programs a fair bit so so what what do you see what what what's what's the point of them uh so i so original my original introduction to museums um was probably as a kid and my dad has a big love of museums not the museums that i now work in but the itty bitty country museums that you visit when you're on a road trip somewhere. He always had to pull over because there was a sign saying, you know, wagon museum or something obscure and ridiculous. And um, one of the best things about visiting those as a kid and then also being interested in that as an adult is uh, as a member of the public coming in and having no idea what I'm really looking at and having someone come up to me who is knowledgeable on this subject and giving you all the information in a way that just having it on a sign doesn't do. So um, I was lucky enough when I think we went to the Australian War Memorial when I was a teenager. And although I think the first hour or so we spent there was quite interesting and the displays were engaging, there was a guided tour by someone uh, in full costume who really brought all it, like just really brought it out into the open for me in terms of um, people's experiences of different of different wars and um, that public programs engagement just compounds the effect that the museum is going for in terms of um, engaging 
members of the public with objects, engaging members of the public with stories, with background information, and also with, with collections. So um, I my background in um, working on public programs uh, as a staff member started with doing some voluntary stuff when I was a student at the South Australian Museum, eventually going to work in the Discovery Centre at the South Australian Museum um, and helping out with school holiday uh, events. Um, so I, I got to dabble in a whole bunch of different stuff for different audiences. So the Discovery Centre is very broad. Anyone can come in, have an object identified, ask a question, look at some live animals. You can... So it's a pretty cool coalface to be at. Very cool. And kind of a dying breed in museums is having that open space where people can come in and ask questions. And yet it's... Everyone wants to do that. They want to ask the scientist questions. I I constantly get uh, the Dinosaur University Facebook page and the Professor Lit Facebook page. I'm constantly getting people sending me, and and it's cool, keep on sending them, photos of things that they found. It might be a cow bone or something, but they're interested enough to go, oh, I want to know what this is. Now, often, uh, because I'm not a real paleontologist, honorary one, is that? Yeah. 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 but there are things that I'll look at and go, oh, I know what that is. There are other times it's like, oh, I don't know what that is. What I love is that I can just, whether it's ring you or Aaron or phone a friend and say, hey, what's this? Um, and so they'll give you that insight. Feed that back to the person. And sometimes they're like, oh, I thought it was a dinosaur. No, it's a cow. But, but they're learning and they're engaged. And you can never, I think that's one of the things about public programs is having that uh, very approachable face to connect the public to the collections. So that was the main one of the main jobs in the Discovery Centre was that people would bring stuff in to be identified. It might be a meteorite was pretty common. People say, I found a meteorite, I found it on in my backyard or on my farm, or maybe they found it in a really remote location. And we would show them how we identify meteorites because that's really what they want to know. It's not just, you know, someone saying yes or no. They want to see how we do it. That's why they bring it in instead of just sending photos sometimes. Um, And I have had so many, and I'm talking in the tens, possibly over 100 people bring in various different meteorites over the years and through my various jobs. Um, And there's never been an actual meteorite. (laughs) But... I tell them to keep looking because it does happen and it does happen to members of the public who just happen to see a rock on the ground and pick it up and bring it in. So never discourage it. The fact that they were so interested... Is the cool part. ...to to pick it up and bring it all the way into the the South Australian Museum. And and you're right, I think places like the Discovery Centre at the museum, Discovery Centres at all museums, are that that wonderful engagement uh, hub where you have somebody who knows stuff that can respond and answer questions of the public. And and I'll often get that again, you know, if I'm wandering around the museum as the prof, I've just finished doing a birthday party or something, you know, people will come up and say, oh, what's going on here or what's that? Although I did have, an, I, I did have a, somebody come up to me once. Oh, no, I was Father Christmas. Somebody came up to me. I was at the airport. No, say, no, bear with me on this, listener. I was, I was at the Adelaide airport being Father Christmas. Um, and somebody came up to me and said, um, excuse me, are you general information? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, no, no, I'm Father Christmas. And he seemed bewildered. Anyway, that was a little tangent yeah. that I just went off and <laughs> thought I'd share with you all. 
the life and times of Michael Mills. Um, designing public programs is a really interesting thing because one of the things that I've learned along the way is that we who do those things need to understand that the person that comes in doesn't know all the stuff that we know. Exactly. And the person that comes in doesn't know you all the stuff that the expert knows. So the expert, and one of the things that I get to do, because I'm not the expert and I'm not the public because I know more, but I get to hang out with the paleos, is that it's like, for me, designing public programs and shows and things is often like, oh, tell me some stuff, Kayla, about lizards. You tell me the stuff and I'm like, oh, that's really cool, that's really cool, that's really cool. My assumption is that the public are going to find that interesting as well. But it's that 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 conduit, I suppose. So how do you, because you've got a, a greater degree of specialised knowledge of the particular area, how do you put yourself in the visitor's chair? Because that's so important, because you don't want to be talking jargon. No, you don't want to be talking jargon. So um, probably another reason why I really like public programs is that I actually grew up living in a country pub. So my parents run, well, were running a hotel. And so since I was very young, I had to learn how to talk to adults who had very different interests to me because I was mostly in social situations with adults, not so much people my own age. Uh, And then as I grew up and as I went to uni, I was working in hotels and I learned how to pass the pub test, as we say. So if you can talk in about a, a subject... In a literal pub. In a literal <laughs> pub. If you can talk about a subject at the pub and people, uh, they can understand what you're saying and they're mildly entertained by your subject content, your work has passed the pub test and pub effectively stands for public. So, because um, it's public hotel, public bar, that's why it's called the pub. And so if, you, if your work can pass the pub test, if you're conversation can pass the pub test then you've effectively communicated something to the public so when i'm designing a public program whether it's for a young adult audience which would be the pub test or whether it's for children you kind of have to put yourself in those shoes you might want to test it out with people you know that are in that audience um but also just starting with letting them ask questions and then filling them in with the information sometimes going off on a tangent if that works but Um, you have to be very flexible. And so when I've um, helped design tours as part of my current job, um, I start off with a few key points that I know that I want to cover in the talk, but I allow people to ask questions and engage with objects that draw their attention or subjects that draw their attention and then kind of tailor make it around the group that I currently have. Yeah, one of the the fundamental... I do shows in theatres and stuff as well. One of the fundamental... Uh, things of of that and in, in, in any art form any art is is an art uh, uh, whether it's theater or even a, um, a, a a novel it's a, it's it's engaging with the public your the, the the public see the thing the the public especially with like with live live shows one of the things that I love doing is where you do a season of shows and because I've written it or co-written it, we get to play with the show so we can change it we can tweak it we can adapt it so that you learn to not be precious 
about going, oh, I wrote this thing and it's beautiful and I love it. Yeah, maybe you do. And you then just put it in your little, 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 little pocket and you can look at it now and again, but it's not working for the public. So you've got to be prepared to chuck stuff as well. Yeah. You've got to be prepared, I think, to, 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 to listen because these are the people, if you're, if you want to deliver a message and they're not getting the message, it's not on them. Yeah, no, it's definitely on you. And I think probably the, the biggest learning curve, um, in my job now where I'm looking after an earth science museum is that my background, I've heavily focused on the biological side of paleontology. So I've been studying anatomy and, and evolution and ecology. And then I've gone back into earth science and it's very heavily rock oriented. <laughs> and most of the geology visitors... Geology is like that. Yeah, geology, <laughs> funnily enough, is like that. There's Yeah, so while there is a big collection of, of fossils that I'm also responsible for, most of the visitors we have are, uh, if they're school groups um, or interest groups, they're coming to visit because they're more interested in the um, geology side in terms of uh, rocks, minerals, um, sometimes rock-forming processes, Um and so I've really had to change what I want to talk about with the public to focus on those areas that I might not necessarily find particularly interesting, um, which is why I went into paleontology rather than staying just with geo. Uh, but you find interesting things to talk about and you find those things by people asking questions. Um, and it might be stuff that I didn't know beforehand and a member of the public has asked me a question, I find the answer and that goes into the next tour. Yeah, and that, that's the thing, isn't it? You get little nuggets along the way and you're like, oh, if you kept all the things that, the, all the new nuggets as you're developing a program and, and you're being in public with it, it's still developing it. It's yeah. never finished. Um, and that's okay that it's not, it's okay that you keep tweaking it and tweaking it in response to, to, to the audiences. But that that being in public thing and getting their responses is such a... Um, crazy cool thing and it starts research you know we feed back these questions to scientists and if they don't know the answer then you know it gets their brain ticking in a completely different subject area um yeah yeah and and uh, as you're talking about the, the geology thing i remember a quote i did some stuff at um at uh the national park not far from flinders hallett cove yeah remarkable national park and I was doing some reading, and again, that's part of the buzz. Like, there's stuff I'm reading now that I never imagined that I would have read 20 years ago. Because, like, oh, that's really interesting. Because one interest leads to another. Um, but there's this really beautiful quote to do with geology, um, and I remembered it as you were talking in the site. You know, the water and the wind and the air forgets, but the rocks remember. Ooh, until the water and the wind wear away the rocks and then they don't <laughs> they That's make right. new rocks <laughs> but, <laughs> that have but an entirely new memory <laughs> but, but but it's the carvings in the rocks it's the, it's the fossils in the rocks it's yeah. that that rocks geology is such a i used to be very yeah biology paleo paleo focused it's like oh hang on geology is really quite important <laughs> it is it <laughs> in is in all of that um and in our understanding of of deep time and all of that stuff okay so we've talked a lot about public programs with museums um when I first started doing things with the South Australian Museum, Tim Flannery was there. Um, and what he was able to do, because he had a fairly significant profile, was draw in lots of research funds. So a whole lot of research got done. And 
so here at Flinders Uni, where we are at the moment, so Mike Lee is part of the, the team here, but he's also got an office at the South Australian Museum. Liz Reed, who's at the University of Adelaide, has an office, as does Diego, at the South Australian Museum. So there's this really nice connection in terms of research. So the value of museums to research is probably, and this is kind of contentious, probably more important than its value to public outreach. I don't, I think museums' primary goal is that they are the keepers of our history, whether that's geological history, whether it's pre-human history, whether it's human history, um, or very recent history. Uh, And without those collections, there can be no public programs. Um, And those collections have a value without there being public programs. Like They don't just exist for people to engage with they exist for a research purpose. So when we talk about the importance of museums, a lot of people say, yes, we should have new galleries, we should have guided tours, we should have all of this funding to to do school engagement. And I 100% agree that we definitely need those to be better funded. But if the collections start to fall apart behind the scenes, then there's nothing to present to the public. There's nothing, there's no new research to talk about. There's no exciting new developments in, in science or, or cultural um, history. So, yeah, I think that's that's one thing that kind of gets neglected um, a fair bit. So that's one, yeah. I have to balance that at and, work. And even the, the cool thing where you're constantly hearing of, of, because we learn new things and new discoveries come about, then one day if somebody opens a drawer and they see a thing that's been sitting there for a hundred years, it's like, wait a minute, we now look at this differently because of what these other people have learned this is actually different to what we thought it was there's been a couple of very big profile <laughs> discoveries exactly like that in the last couple of years so um the makapurna the um wombat-like relative was in queensland yeah for, well the the guys from queensland described it but it's from um i think it was like air basin yes yep. um so that was sitting in a drawer in the u.s for years and was never properly completely described um they had another one recently they found the oldest fossil of a lizard ever and had been sitting in a drawer in a uk museum for you know 100 years or something probably not 100 years but a long time um and it was you know this is things that change our entire outlook on the history of these groups of animals um one of the very last chapter of my phd that i'm working on publishing was a very similar situation there's big chunks of this giant lizard that has been sitting in drawers in the australian museum for over a hundred years they've moved from collection to collection so many people have looked at them put a like they've just called it lizard uh but in fact it's you know the biggest skink that's ever lived and you really need someone who has that niche expertise to find it yeah, and to look, look at, at it. it you look at it with your knowledge and, and it means something like, entirely oh. different and that's that thing and and and, and i'm going to plug mary anning here because that's what she was able to do she had such a knowledge after so many years of walking the beaches of Lyme Regis and the cliffs, that she was she would see things that other people would walk straight past, which is which is a thing that paleontologists do. Yeah, and it's not something that you can immediately learn how to do in a in a short project. It's something that takes years of professional development. You need to stare at something for hours before you can see where the differences are between two objects. You know, you might need to spend 
a whole PhD just trying to figure out what's going on between two different animals. You know, why are they different? Why are they the same? How do they fit into the greater tree of life? And so it's also a field that entirely relies on museums because you need to have those comparative collections. You need to have that resource. Um, And that field is taxonomy, which is being able to tell the difference between different animals and how they fit into everything and else. And you need the, 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 the images in your brain. You need an individual who can see those differences. Okay, we've got a very short amount of period of time to go. Um, one final thing I wanted to touch on, which we probably won't even be able to address completely, is using a museum as a venue versus using as... A, so so I, I wouldn't... i use this as an example. I wouldn't do Shakespeare at the Botanic Garden but I'll do a show called Singing in the Rainforest about the Botanic Garden. For me, and, and, and it's okay for it to be used as a venue. Well, yeah. That's a legitimate thing. But for me, I love the stuff where the theatre you're producing or the public programme you're producing is telling the stories of the connections. Collections. Where, your thoughts? Yeah, I think being in proximity to physical matter that's connected to a story really brings it home for a lot of people, particularly people who might not engage with uh, verbal storytelling. They might need objects, so they might have a hearing impairment or if someone has a visual impairment and you can hand them something that is tactile, that they can touch. Um, If it's, you know, using a museum as a venue and you're presenting some sort of historical story, um, and the building is itself is the museum, which is a lot of country museums are set in ye old cottage, in, which was the first building it, that started a town, you know, and that really brings it home for people in a way that you can't do by a building, a pretend set. On that note, Dr. Kayla Thorne, we are about to end our time together. Thank you so much for um, joining us and... Um, Look forward to chatting you another time. Yes, hopefully I'll visit sooner than I did this time. <laughs> it's time to spread some paleo jazz.